This is from Luke 24, and this is uh, right there in the middle of your bulletin. The words are going to be on the screen, but then they're going to come down again so you can refer back to the text here in the bulletin. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. That very day, Easter day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had just happened. Crucifixion stuff, Easter stuff. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. A road is a really good metaphor. I went through a few music playlists of mine just to find how many of them had the word road in the title. Here are a few of them. The Long and Winding Road, Thunder Road, On the Road to Find Out, End of the Road, Voice to Men, anyone? End of the Road, Low Side of the Road. By the way, this doesn't mention all the uh, songs with words like highway or street or avenue in them. It's all the same point. 
We use it metaphorically in conversation all the time. For example, saying things like, don't go down that road, or take the high road. And Jesus does it too. Jesus uses the idea of a road as a metaphor all the time. Sermon on the Mount, for example. There's a broad road or way, broad way, that leads to destruction and the narrow one that leads to life. This is a story about a road. It's about two former followers of Jesus. They've, they've kind of abandoned their mission with him after they saw him die on a cross. Two former followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And let me be clear, this story is not a, a metaphor. It is not a parable. It is not fiction. You know, Luke says at the very beginning of his gospel, he's clearer than the other gospels, gospel writers even about this. He says, I'm doing my very best to present an orderly, detailed account confirmed by witnesses. It's a true story, but there are also really rich, layered, metaphorical things happening in this story also. And they're really helpful. You need to think about this road, which, which goes between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Think of this road as the road of both belief and unbelief. They're coming from a place of hope, a place of belief. Jerusalem. They followed Jesus on the road to Jerusalem because they were convinced that he was the Messiah. They were right there during the triumphal entry, waving palm branches, saying victory, Hosanna, salvation, son of David, David the Messiah, the greater Messiah has come, the anointed one. And then he got crucified a week later, and now they're going in the other direction on the road, and the road of hope, the road of salvation, the road of victory has become the road of hopelessness, of faithlessness, of despair. That's, that's the road. It both, it, they're both the same road, depending on which way you're going. You get what I'm saying? That's all there in this story. Here, they are going away from the place of hope, and Jesus meets them right there in the direction of hopelessness and meets with them. If you've been with us for a while, we're in a, a worship series, uh, a sermon series about worship gatherings. Different places in scripture where we see people gathering for worship. What are they doing? Why are they, they doing it? And, and we're trying to take a cue from these passages in scripture as we get back into the rhythm of ourselves coming together for gathered worship. What were we missing when we had to worship on screens? And we carefully have begun to regather again, hopefully more and more and more until we're all the way outside the, the pandemic someday, Lord willing. What do we see that we've lost that we want to regain again when we see worship gatherings in scripture? And it might seem strange to some of you that I'm going to this passage, but this is one of those passages that historically has informed the church how their services should flow the way that they do. It's very interesting. And I think it's remarkable that this passage takes place between Jesus and a couple of failed disciples on the road to hopelessness. And when Jesus meets with them, he does nothing less than hold a worship service with them. And I'm going to show you very carefully 
what I mean and what the church has seen in this passage, and by the way, others just like it, for thousands of years. Just as a frame. I'm going to put this on the screen. It's there already. Thank you. To track the flow of this passage, which is also the flow of worship services across millennia, and it is also the flow of your life in Christ. God calls. God convicts. God counsels. God communes. God commissions. If you've ever wondered why we go through things in the order that we do in our services, this is why. First, God calls us. See verse 15. They were talking and discussing together, Cleopas and this other disciple, many, many people, at least in the ancient church, were convinced that it was the gospel writer Luke himself. This other disciple is unnamed. But there are these two disciples, failed disciples, going on the road of hopelessness towards Emmaus. And Jesus interrupts them. See that? Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus approached them. Jesus initiated with them on the road of unbelief. They, they even say, once he initiates with them, they unpack things to him. They respond. He initiates, they respond. And he, they tell him just how hopeless they are. Verse 21, we really hoped that this was the one to redeem Israel, this one that they're talking to, who they're sure is now dead. We really thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But over the past three days, we're convinced now that Jesus can't have been the one we hoped he was. It's in this place God initiates with them, summons them, calls them back. God always initiates, not just in our worship services, in our world. Going all the way back to let there be light, let there be life. We don't come here because we first loved God. God first loved us, so we, in response, love him and others. That's why in our worship services, we open with some of his words every time. A call to worship. It's not so much we're calling each other to worship. We are, I suppose. But we're using his own words of welcome to do so. Because he's the one who always initiates. Secondly, God convicts. Did you see how after listening to their response for a while, Jesus calls them out on their unbelief and doubt. He's a little rough with them at first. Look, look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Why is Jesus so rough with them? Why does he say, you are slow of heart to believe? It's because they were with him every day. They were with him every day, and something about his crucifixion, even though he told them it was going to happen, even though he was quoting the prophets to them again and again on the way to Jerusalem, even though he was telling people things like, don't make me famous yet. That's not what I came to do or be. I actually came to take a cross of suffering, and that will be the place of my victory. Ironically, miraculously, necessarily, 
They just couldn't hear it. They couldn't reconcile the idea of a victorious king with a suffering king, so much so that he's standing right there and they can't see him because it would be impossible if it were him. And Jesus convicts them about their unbelief. We should never enter into worship assuming that we're seeing straight, that we're seeing clearly, that we have hearts that are attuned. This is one of the reasons why we're really intentional, and the church historically has been, about confession. Bringing conviction is part of the work of the worship service. If you heard the, the, the confession reading today that Victor read us through, it was from Hebrews 4, and it describes the words of God, the words of Jesus, as not just like a nice pillow that you can put your head down on and have a comfortable nap with, as a sword, as something that before it heals sometimes has to cut, that has to make you aware that you're not well, maybe it's even worse than you think you're wandering from God, but that in of itself is also a grace. His word's a sword. Conviction lets you know your need for a savior. And that's a key part of not just a worship service, but your life in Christ. So let me just ask you for a second, how are you slow of heart? How were you slow of heart this week? I kind of prayed these things already this morning. I was reminded how a few fairly minor life events can absolutely devastate me and take all of my reality and narrow it into only the focus of that perceived disaster, which really is too bad and hard and difficult. But it also means that Jesus would call me, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you, my beloved one, you're still so slow of heart. I was reminded this week also of how I can wait for something to happen again and again and again and be waiting for years even and then finally it happens and as soon as I'm given that thing I've waited for, all my attention immediately goes to the anxiety of a new thing that I don't have yet. And that's you too. I mean, come on. So, such little faith, but he doesn't cast us off. He knows we need to be brought back. He goes and gets us. He initiates. He convicts but then he patiently listens more, has compassion, stays with them, and counsels them. That's the third one. God calls, God convicts, God counsels. This is verse 27. Do you see verse 27? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, like all over the place. You know, in their scriptures at the time were still just the four-fifths of our Bible that we call the Old Testament. In all the scriptures, I mean, what a conversation this must have been, the things concerning himself. It's like he's going through Genesis through Malachi and saying, there's me, there's me, there's how you knew I had to come, there's this, see it this way? Remember, I told you about this while I, before my crucifixion, but now do you see what I'm talking about? Etc. Etc. He goes on and on and on. I wonder if he spoke to them about the first Passover. Remember that lamb? The blood, the freedom it bought? on the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I wonder if you talked to him about Isaiah 53, that suffering servant passage, where Isaiah says there's one coming who's going to bear our griefs 
carry our sorrows, be wounded for our transgressions, be crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brings us peace. He had to. It says all the scriptures, everywhere. I mean, I, it, something here had to be in their memory because, you know, you can't imagine they were just carrying all these scrolls with them. It wasn't like they had a neat little Bible back then. But he's walking with them through their memory of these texts. There's me, there's me, there's me. It says in verse 27, he read, it says he interpreted to them. He didn't just read, but he interpreted. This is why in our services we spend significant time both reading and interpreting scripture. We've lost our way through his counsel, his words. Our path is restored. We get our life back. And then after we hear a sermon, we say things like, our life having been restored by his counsel, we say things like, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, orienting ourselves on the path he's called us back to, reality having been restored by his words. Fourthly, God communes with us. God communes with us. Verse 33 to 35, look again, right at the bottom of the page. They rose that same Oh, excuse me, verses 30 and 32, I jumped ahead. Verses 30 and 32. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? At the beginning, you see, they didn't recognize him. Now they do. Before, remember it said they were slow of heart, and now they say our hearts are burning. Why did it happen at the communion meal? It's at this point, the communion point, that their hearts, they're realizing now, they recognize him, and they realize how much their heart was on fire with his words. Why at the meal? Why at communion? Did their eyes get open to recognize he's alive, he's not dead after all? Here's why. Because table fellowship, table fellowship in the ancient world was when you really got to know someone. You move from knowing about them to actually knowing them. Let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of you probably have like a LinkedIn profile, other social media accounts, multiple multinational organizations have it all in their, you know, data crawlers all over the internet. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who work for those companies know all about you. They have all the information, all the data. And if one of them showed up at your front door and said, hi, I work for Google, I know you, you would say, get off my stoop. Who are you? They do know all about you, but they don't know you at all. Can you say that you know him? But this is the point in our service where we say yes to him. Counsel, you can take it, by the way. His counsel, his words. I hear you, I see you, I believe you, I say yes to you. That's knowing him. That's why we don't stop with the words. We move on to the yes of communion. 
all their hope on this man they thought, but he lives. And if he lives, that means he can be known. And he often makes himself known at the table. Final point. Knowing him, that's when the road of doubt becomes the road of belief. And it's like instinctively, right? They just run back to Jerusalem. They turn about face from the road of unbelief and they sprint back in the way of hope all the way back to the city of peace, city of Shalom, Jerusalem, to tell everybody they know about what they know now about the risen Savior. That's the fifth thing he commissions us. Verses 33 to 35, there it is, the very last words I read for us. They rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened to them on the road, and they all share stories, and, and they're alive again. They were lost. They've been found. They ran back instinctively, but really Christ commissioned them back to the community of believers, back to the work of the gospel, rejoining them in Jerusalem with burning hearts. You all have a heart that burns for something. Augustine is so good, good on this back in the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, whatever your heart burns most for, believe it or not, the thing that you mo love most purely about that thing is actually something you believe most about, you, you love most about God because he created it, if that makes sense. He's the one who sets our hearts on fire. This sending out, I don't know if you knew this, is so integral to a worship service that if you're ever familiar with uh, the word mass, a lot of our Roman Catholic friends refer to their service as a mass. Why do they call it a mass? It's because uh, the Latin word misa was among the last words of a service, and it was a sending out. Mass means sending out, misa, sending out. They couldn't conceive of having a worship service without an intentional, empowered sending. And actually, so it's always been with the church. We end with going out. This isn't just for us. The love from God that's come to us, the riches, the generosity, the mercy, the forgiveness, the meaning in life, it's for the planet. We're sent out in the end. So this is it, folks. He calls, he convicts, he counsels, he communes, he commissions. It's here, it's here. Maybe we already looked at it in this series. Isaiah 6 is actually a very close mirror, although it's a very different narrative. This is why we do what we do in worship, but believe me, it's not just the flow of our worship service. It's the flow of the gospel, right? He makes us, we flee. He sacrificed on our behalf. He cries out to us, come back, we come, we commune, we're sent out. Um, your life in Christ, once you come to him, you forget what you've believed. You're, you're, you're oh, you of little faith. Again, he encounters you. He calls you out. He loves you too much not to, right? That's how you know somebody really loves you. He gives you the counsel of his word with compassion. He invites you to his table, sinner that you are, prodigal son that you are, in the pig pen. He calls you all the way back, just like the father waiting to receive you back, looking on the horizon, grace all the way down every time, and now says, share it to the world. It's your whole life in Christ. So it better be the flow of our worship service, right? 
This service reinforces it in at best, and I'm not saying we're at our best here, folks. I'm not saying we are somehow the gold standard of worship services. My goodness. <laughs> I know that's not what we are. That being said, this structure which we're trying to follow really does form us, form us for the mission he's called us to. How many of you have seen The Karate Kid? Either the old one, the real one, or the one with you know, Will Smith's kid and Jackie Chan. They're both pretty good. Remember wax on, wax off? Wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, sand the floor, paint the house. After five days, he's beside himself, saying, you make me wax your car, paint your house, paint your fence, sand your floor. What is this? This is supposed to be martial arts training. And then he starts punching and kicking at him. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Daniel LaRusso is going, like, wax on, wax off, paint, paint, paint. He's formed. Without knowing it, right? Just follow in the way, do what I do as I do it, trust me, this is your whole life, and then watch it just exude from you. That's what our worship service is supposed to be. Pray that it will be. And believe me, when you're at some point in your journey as a Christian, when you're as hopeless as these two disciples were, and it's pretty hard to get more hopeless than they were, when you're as hopeless as these two disciples, individually or maybe all of us together corporately, when we're directionless, when we're facing the biggest challenges of our day in our world, the clearest compass to return us to health, to return us to reality, is our worship. Holiness exists. God is good. I'm what's wrong with the world. But his mercy and grace is a bigger solution. His words are sanity. They're solid. They're anchoring. And yeah, they hurt sometimes, but they also keep welcoming me home. Never too far off to be utterly lost. This table is there for anyone who would say, Lord, have mercy on me. You are Lord and Savior. And it's not just for you. You exist to be part of what he's doing to bless the planet. This is your anchor. And brothers and sisters, I know what we do here most Sundays will not seem like it's the most important thing in the world, but I swear to you it is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.